there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. The first parable that is recorded in the Bible is kind of like the parable of the hammer and the anvil. A couple of weeks ago we talked about the sword and what the sword means. This parting, this division, this separating, dividing your attention separating yourself from whatever it is you're identified with, observing yourself as if you were observing an interesting stranger. Biblically, one of the meanings of that is the sword. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only meaning. I'm saying there are probably lots of meanings, but this is the meaning that I want to talk about. The meaning that I want to talk about in the first parable that's ever used in the Bible. If you don't remember this story, I will refresh your memory. King David had dallied with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Uriah was in the army, and he was off fighting a war. King David was in his palace while his soldiers were off fighting the war. And one night he went out, and Jerusalem can get hot in the summer. And so one night he went out on the roof of his palace. Because it gets so hot, people go up to the roofs. And that's where they, at night, and that's where they can cool off some. Because that's how it works. There's some breeze up there. There's some fresh air up there. And inside is all stuffy and hot because all of the, the stones and the, the mortar and the bricks hold the heat. So they get up there and they just... Well, anyway, he looked out and there was, a, there was a moon that night. And so he looked out and here was this woman naked on her roof bathing. And he said, hubba hubba, you know, thus saith King David, hubba hubba. So then he sent someone to go get her. First he asked who she was, sent somebody to go get her, and he had her brought to the palace, and he dallied with her. In other words, he committed adultery. That's just part of the story. It gets sorted after that. What happened then was she got pregnant. So David was like, oh man, what a drag. You know, she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. Well, her husband hasn't been around. In Israel in those days, you got pregnant and your husband wasn't around. You were a whore and they stoned you. So David thought, well, we don't want her stoned. That's not going to work out. And we don't want anybody to know that I'm the dad. So he hatched this brilliantly evil scheme of covering his tracks. And he goes and he sends for Uriah to come back home. Uriah comes back and David spends some time with him. How's it going in the war? You know, how's Joab doing? Yada, 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 yada. Uriah tells him everything. And he says, okay, well, go on home and, you know, eat and drink and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, and, and go see your wife. So Uriah, he doesn't do that. He goes down and he stays at the gates with the rest of the servants of the king. He will not go to his house while his commander is still in the field. David hears of this. He said, he hears that he didn't go back to his wife. Damn it. How am I going to get this thing covered up? So he calls him up again the next night for dinner, and he gets him drunk. And he says, now go on home and, you know, and see your wife and, you know, sleep there. And, and he says, far be it for me to go home and enjoy being with my wife and my own home and my own bed when the king's servants are sleeping out in an open field in warfare under the stars. He said, no way, I won't do it. So David goes, okay. 
So the next morning he figures, well, I can't get this guy to go home. I can't cover my tracks this way. So he gives him a note and he tells, to, he says, give this to Joab. And in the, in the note, he says, send Uriah up to the, to the front lines. And then when he's up there and, and in the heat of the battle, withdraw from him. So basically what he says is, go kill him. Have him killed. Just send him up right in the front lines. And then everybody, all of his support back away so that he gets killed. You feel that in the pit of your stomach? Yes. That is what we don't like to see about ourselves. That is who we are. That is what we are. That is what the false personality will do to get its way. That is who we are. This is, this whole story, this whole thing is just self-will run riot. This is self-love, self-will. This is what we are made of. This is what we need to observe. But we can't observe it because it's too horrible. It's too horrible to observe. So we have to observe it as if it's an interesting stranger. So we do. We have David, who's an interesting stranger. And if you're identified with David at all, then you feel like, oh, man, you really blew it, David. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You're probably hurting a little bit. Forget about Uriah. Here's Uriah. What'd he do? He's a noble, just man. So Joab does what the king tells him to do, and Uriah gets killed. Joab sends a note back, or sends, yeah, he sends a messenger back and to tell him that what happened with the war. And unfortunately, some of your, your men get killed, and we went up to the wall, and, and David goes crazy. What's the matter with Joab? Doesn't he know Abimelech and, and what happened to him? And he got too close to the wall and some woman threw a stone over and bashed his brains out. And that was the end of him. And you know better than to do that. And Joab said, now, if the king starts to rage about this and rant and rave about this and get all weird about it. You just tell him, and also your servant Joab was, or your servant Uriah was killed. And so... The, the king's ranting and raving. What's the matter with Joab? Why? He knows better. You can't do that. And blah, 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 blah. And so he says, oh, and your servant Uriah was also killed. And David goes, oh, well, you know, the sword devours one as another. And he calms down because he got what he wanted. Does this sound anything like anyone you know? If it doesn't, don't go near a mirror now. Stay away from mirrors. Mirrors are bad now. If it doesn't sound like somebody you know, stay away from mirrors because mirrors are bad. That's what happened. David dallied with this other man's wife. She got pregnant. He had the man killed because he wouldn't go home and cover David's tracks by sleeping with his wife so that they had a plausible explanation for her pregnancy. Now, the first parable in the Bible, the hammer is what I call it, is found in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And I'll start with verse 1. I guess it goes through verse 1 through 7, and it's like this. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. And the hammer fell. And it hit David hard. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you all this. I did all this. And if it hadn't been enough, you should have asked. I'd have given you anything you wanted. But because you did this, you're in trouble now, boy. David finally said, you're right. This was what made King David a man after God's own heart. He said, you're right. He did not defend himself for a second, not a nanosecond. He, he said, you're right. He fell on his face and he said, you're absolutely right. I deserve to die. And Nathan said, no, you're not going to die. This is a parable. It means it uses some other story to tell us something else. It uses some outer story to relate some inner event some inner truth. And see, parables are like hammers because they catch us unaware because we can start to judge David. We can start to judge. We can start to pour all of our judgment out on that man outside of us, which of course we love to do because we don't know that man inside of us because we haven't looked to see that man inside of us. But that man is inside of us. This is what this work says. This work says that man is inside of you. You are that man. Our work is to separate ourselves from the unreal eyes that false personality is. One unreal side of us attracting unreal things. Our job is to separate ourselves from the unreal eyes in us that false personality is one unreal side of us that is attracting unreal things. What does that mean, unreal things? It means your life. This life of accidents, this life of insanity, this life of out of control, those are unreal things that your false personality, that these eyes inside of you are attracting. Attitudes are unreal things in us. They filter impressions in a negative way. An attitude is like, it's like a virtual helmet that you put on. And everything that comes in through your eyes and your nose and your ears, everything that comes in, it's like a full body condom. And Everything is filtered through that so that you never really get what's really there. You get everything filtered through that attitude. Now, attitudes, unfortunately, for us, are almost always negative. Attitudes, we acquire them. For example, we acquire the attitude that we're better than certain people. Look, here we are. We're all Caucasians here. I promise you that in your life, you, you acquired in this country the attitude that white is right and better, and that other people who are not white are not quite as good. That's an acquired attitude. Now, you may have worked your whole life to try and get around that, to try and eliminate that attitude, and that's fine, but you still acquired the attitude somewhere along the line, unless you were raised by black people somewhere, or you know, Latinos or something, or American Indians, or whatever. But if you were raised by white people, my guess is you've got that attitude somewhere. I mean, some of it, some people may have it very strongly, very powerfully. And some people may just have it as just a kind of a feeling of uneasiness around someone who's got the wrong color skin. Now, I know I'm not supposed to be talking about things like this, but this is life. If this work cannot be applied in life, then what good is it? This is the fourth way, the way in life. So when we meet these people, the attitude operates mechanically in us. We don't have a choice. If we're not alive, we're dead. Did you know that? And you don't have to be in the grave to be dead. And you don't get to be called alive just because you're breathing and moving. You know, just because you're dead and your moving center doesn't know it yet doesn't mean you're alive. It was touched by an angel. The guy who, who, who played in it, he was, he was a racist. And he, he, he was a white guy, but he, didn't, he, he couldn't abide black people. And black people knew it. He didn't have to say anything. Black people knew it. 
when they were around him. And one day he was touched by an angel and he, he, he ended up going to this black guy who he worked with and telling him the truth. He said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I just, there's something wrong with me. There's something inside of me that's wrong. Even if I try to shake your hand, there's something inside of me that wants to pull away as if it would be wrong and dirty. And this was so raw to have this man, this white man say this to the black man. that I, I mean, it was, it was raw. And I thought, wow, this is powerful. This guy's attitude that he acquired somewhere in life was totally mechanically overpowering him and making him feel and act and have thoughts. He was not there. He was a total machine. And just for me, was a perfect example of how our acquired attitudes operate us mechanically. We don't like them from our attitude. We don't like them from mechanicalness. We have no reason other than we have this attitude on that we acquired. It somehow just coded us in life, that we got coded with as we grew up where we grew up with the people that we grew up with. We just picked it up. Nobody even had to say the words to us. And some, some probably did, but nobody had to say the words. And you just got this attitude like osmosis. And here it operates in us mechanically. If someone shows us the value of those people, the people that we don't like mechanically, that we have an attitude about, we may get around the attitude and begin to take in new impressions. So what happened was in this thing, this angel touched this guy. And for just a little while, he had the ability to kind of start to see that there was real value in this other human being. And he had to confront his attitude. He had to confront his feelings of repulsion and revulsion. And he told the truth about them. He ended up shaking the guy's hand. But you could see that it was a real struggle for him, that the fire was there, that the friction was there, that he had to work, that the attitude wasn't just miraculously taken away by an angel. He had to work. But the attitude was shown to him by an angel. Nathan was an angel to David. God sent him. And an angel is a messenger of the truth, a messenger of God. God sent him. Go to David and tell him this. So he went to David and told him this parable. And he caught David unaware. When David saw what he'd done and was ready to pour out his judgment on the other man, the imaginary man, and he saw that it was himself, he said, you are that man. He was undone. He went right around his attitude. Boom. Not everyone would. Some people would justify themselves in the face of that. They'd lie their way out of it. Our false personality is undermined if someone can show us value in the kinds of people that we automatically, mechanically have this attitude toward. It undermines our false personality, freeing us from the negative contraction of the acquired side. Because we contract. You can feel it. Negativity contracts. You can feel it in your stomach. You can feel it in your solar plexus. You can feel it in all of your joints. You can feel it in your face. You can feel it in your muscles. If you feel, and, and you all do because you all do these exercises, where you sense your body, so you are in touch with your limbs and your torso and your head, you know where these muscles are. You know what they feel like. You know when they're contracted. You know when they're relaxed, expanded. If you're paying attention, you know this. When you get negative, you contract. But when the false personality is undermined and we're freed from the contraction, from the negative acquired side and that attitude, rather than feeling a loss because we have lost this attitude, we feel a sense of gain. <laughs> it's so bizarre. You lose something and instead of feeling loss, you, you feel like you've gained something. This is the, the magic of this work. Attitudes are difficult to observe in ourselves because we're taught them very early in life. 
through education and imitation. And as I said, they're nearly always negative, and they gradually become fixed. And then they gradually, after becoming fixed, they gradually become buffers. And you know the purpose of a buffer is to keep you from seeing the contradiction in yourself. So now you go around able to point the finger, as David was, at this other man who did the same thing that he did. Because you've got this buffer, this contradiction in yourself that you can't see. You can't see that you're that man. Until the hammer drops, you are that man. Until you're undone. You're undone by self-observation. You're undone by conscious shocks. That was a conscious shock that Nathan delivered to David, I guarantee you. That man was shocked. When that hammer dropped, he felt it. It crushed his false personality. It crushed that part of him. It shattered that part of him. See, buffers prevent us from seeing our contradictions, and it's why well-buffered men are often successful in life. You're not going to be a president or a congressman or a senator or, or a successful businessman in this life unless you're well-buffered. Because in order to be a success in this life, you've got to be right all the time. You've got to have the courage of your convictions, right or wrong. And the only way to have the courage of your convictions, right or wrong, is to not know when they're wrong. Maybe people, people look at President Bush and they say, well, he's prosecuting this war, he's doing this, he's doing it. He doesn't, he doesn't feel wrong about it at all. He doesn't think there's anything wrong about it at all. He feels like he's absolutely right. Why? He's well-buffered. You don't get to be president by not being well-buffered. I'll guarantee it. You don't get to be anybody in this life without being well-buffered. They appear to be strong-willed because buffers keep them from seeing anything that's wrong with themselves. But well-buffered people are low in the scale of being. In a work sense, they're very weak. Because when you're well-buffered, you can't let the work work on you. You have to have a hammer to come and break up the crystallization. And the more buffers you have and the stronger you are and the stronger your false personality is, the bigger the hammer has to be. So you look at your life and you say, oh man, the hammer's falling in my life. What's that tell you? Tells me that life is wrong and everything's bad and wrong and these people shouldn't be doing this. Well, if it tells you that, what it's supposed to be telling you is you're well buffered. That's what it's supposed to be telling you. If there's a big hammer in your life, you're well buffered. Oh, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that. Well, so what? What are you going to do? The hammer comes to you, falls in your life, shatters something. What are you going to do? Justify it. Rebuild it. Get the super glue. Uh, fix it. Or are you going to humble yourself the way David did? And say, you're right, I deserve to die. You're going to find yourself in the ray of creation. You're going to find your place in the ray of creation, your nothingness, your smallness in the light of allness, in the, in the, in the scale of, of that ray, and see how little you are and humble yourself the way David did. Or are you going to justify yourself? Are you going to make excuses? It's not my fault. They, they, they did it to me. Well-buffered people have a tough time in this work. Some people have come to us so well-buffered, they need a parable or a dream. We had a guy come to us who was so well-buffered, he had to have a dream to show him the truth about himself. And what did he do? This couldn't mean that. This, this doesn't mean that. He was so well-buffered that he left. I'm not coming back here anymore. It makes me have bad dreams. Well, this work isn't for people like that. This work isn't for people like that. You can piddle with it and dally with it and read about it and talk about it all you want. But don't be messing with people who are doing it because it'll give you bad dreams. It'll give you nightmares. It'll bring a hammer into your life that will bust you up. And if you're not ready to have your life busted up, go away post haste. Do yourself a favor. 
Run. Do not walk. Run. I've been saying this my whole life. After getting it, they move on because there's nothing real in them. Ooh, that's a harsh thing to say. Well, if there was anything real in them, it would be touched. Have you ever cracked a walnut with a hammer? Now, if you do it just right, you know, you have to crack a lot of walnuts. But if you do it just right, you don't spoil everything that's inside. But every once in a while, you get one, you crack it open, then there's just nothing real left in there. It's all black and nasty and shriveled up. You just got yourself something with nothing real inside of it. It's walnut shell on the outside, but inside there's nothing real. There's no meat. There's no succulent meat. There's no anything that you can eat. And there are some people like that. I'm sorry. I didn't make the rules. I didn't make those people. I'm not judging those people. I'm just saying there are some people like that. There's just nothing real inside of them. And they find this work and they just polish their walnut shells. Because when the hammer drops, they're not going to find anything inside. If they stay around long enough for the hammer to drop. It's best to let those people go because destroying their buffer, cracking that walnut shell, could lead to total madness for them. And we're not here to make people crazy. That's not, that's not what this is about. So it's better to just let those people go, which is what, exactly what I do. Somebody leaves, I don't go after them. I don't write them or call them or send them an email or a letter and say, please reconsider. I don't say anything. We just get on about the business of doing what we have to do. It's not because I'm an uncaring, unfeeling person. It's because I understand that if there's nothing real in you, this work isn't for you. Come back some other lifetime. Come back some other time when you've got something inside of you. And if you don't now, then you don't now. I don't know what to tell you about that. That's not my business. I'm not in the business of putting something real inside the walnuts. I'm also not in the business of cracking them. That just happens to happen sometimes because this work causes a lot of pressure. And it's not always a hammer. Sometimes it's just like a nutcracker that's squeezed more and more and more until the pressure finally builds up and pop, the shell cracks. I'll tell you, cracking walnuts is a finessey kind of thing. You got to be careful with that. Good example. Thank you, whoever that came from. Thank you, hire whoever. I love being connected. Don't you love being connected? We begin with impersonal self-study so that we can gain knowledge of our own being. David gained some knowledge of his own being that night with Nathan. He got to see in a big way something about himself that he had absolutely no clue was there. He was King David. <laughs> Nathan came around with that little parable. He was reduced to a puddle on the floor. You're right, I deserve death. We begin to consciously notice how we behave, how we speak, how we react, like David did. He saw all in a moment. See, when, the, when, when it's the big hammer like that, and you see flash all in a moment. The thing that David didn't go crazy is pretty incredible. Some people would have pulled their hair and teeth out on the spot. Ah! David, he just threw up his hands and said, fine, kill me now. You're right. Not everybody can be that receptive. Not everybody can be that humble. But he just had this relationship with the universe, with the ray of creation, so that he could just click right into his spot and realize his nothingness. What a beautiful thing. Wouldn't you like to have that? David had that. And that's why David was called a, God, a man after God's own heart, because David had that. He had that ability to just crawl right inside his nothingness, to just own it, to not justify it, to not fight, to not do anything, to just openly be nothing. Yeah! I want some of that. I want some more of that. How much more? I want all of it. Be bold. I want all of it. Well, you're halfway there. <laughs> well, I'm half nothing. No, I'm nothing. I just don't always realize it. Sometimes it takes a big hammer 
That's okay. I'm willing. As we begin to consciously see, notice how we behave, speak, react, this moves us inwards, causing a separation of ourselves from ourselves. King David stood back and saw what the king had done through the parable. He got to see what he had done. Part of this is observing our attitudes. This can lead to new thoughts and feelings. As we are, we take ourselves for granted, not realizing what happens to us we caused. <laughs> David, see, he took himself for granted. He was the king. How easy is it to take yourself for granted when you're the king? When everybody does what you want, when everybody does what you say. That's the well-buffered man. Man, that guy's in trouble. If you're just some schmo down here at the, you know, at the dung gate, taking out the trash, it's hard to be that well-buffered. I'm not saying you can't be, <laughs> but it's more difficult because you're nobody already. You got a leg up in this work. You got to see that what happened to him, he caused. And so what did he do? Well, he tried to fix it. Have Uriah killed. Have this happen. Bring Uriah back. Have him go sleep with his wife. Oh, that didn't work. Well, get him drunk. Try that. That didn't work. Oh, have him killed. That worked. Till, till Nathan showed up. Oh, that didn't work. Everything he tried didn't work. And he got to see, finally, that everything that happened to him, he had caused. That's what we need to see. Everything that happens to us, we caused. Nobody did it to us. We caused it. This is more than giving mental assent. It's what David came to when Nathan said, you are the man. You're the man. That man you're raging against, you're the man. That person you're negative about, you're the person. That person who unjustly treated you this way and did that, you're the person. No, that was King David. No, that's you. And this is what this work is about. Now, I don't know what, how it got into the Bible, because I don't think Gurdjieff wrote the Bible. <laughs> so I don't know how it got in there. Well, wait a second. I do know. I just put it there. Bible didn't say all that about self-observation and this and that. Bible didn't call that a parable. It just directly said, boom, this is what happened. And it was up to me to bring myself to it, to bring this work to it, to let it feed me, to let me get the impressions from it. Yeah, giving mental assent isn't enough. Oh, yes, I know that I'm this. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a terrible pro. Oh, I know all these. Oh, yes, I, that's true. That's true. Well, we're all that way. That's giving mental assent. Here's what I have to say to that. No sale. Hypnotic sleep that we're under keeps us in a self-illusion. We don't imagine we have these particular attitudes. I'm not a bigot. I'm not a chauvinist. I'm a generous person. I'm... I'm kind man. I'm a good man. I'm I'm a I'm a gentle man. I am not a violent man. I'm a gentle man. I wouldn't hurt a fly. Remember that movie Psycho, Norman Bates, and he's finally sitting in the nut house in a rocking chair and he's dressed up in his mother's outfit and there's a fly crawling on his hand and you hear it inside his head, Oh, I'll show them that I wouldn't even hurt a fly. And I thought, Yeah, that's us. That's us. We wouldn't even hurt a fly. Psycho killers that wouldn't even hurt a fly. Our negative attitudes distinguish us from others, which of course strengthens our false personality. What is my false personality if it is not what makes me different from you? How do I know where you stop and I begin? False personality, attitudes, distinguishing features. I'm not like that. I'm different. 
That strengthens our false personality. We must observe these attitudes and remember them. It's not enough to just see them and give mental assent to them. They must be put in work memory. They must be established. They, may, they must be laid down in work memory. They must be recorded there. They must be burned in there. We've got to remember this. We've got to remember what we see. We've got to remember how we are. We have to look on it naked, vulnerable, raw, direct. At the same time, unattached, not identified. I know, I'm asking a lot. It's doable. See, the problem is attitudes take the place of real thinking. You have an attitude about someone, you didn't think about it. You may think you thought about it, but all you did was run somebody else's thoughts through your mind because that's part of the attitude. It takes the place of real thinking. Real thinking is not running someone else's thoughts through your mind. Now, we don't know much about real thinking. I know, that's a horrible thing to say, but we don't know much about real thinking. We know a lot about attitude thinking. Because that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Negative attitudes are hard places in the intellectual center, Ospensky said. Negative attitudes are hard places in the intellectual center. They're like crystallized thoughts finally becoming buffers. And they affect the emotional center. How do they affect the emotional center? They make the emotional center paralyzed, contracted, and shut down so that it cannot do what it's supposed to do. What is that? What is the emotional center supposed to do? We'll have negative emotions, of course. No, that's not what the, the emotional center is supposed to do. The emotional center is supposed to have real emotions. The emotional center is supposed to connect us with higher emotional center. The emotional center is supposed to connect us with the heart of God. Oh, but that may not be so good because there is great sorrow in the heart of God because of our separateness. Well, there is truth to that. And it could be painful. In fact, you could suffer. Are you willing? To take some of that, are you willing to let a few of those drops fall on you? Are you willing to feel that? Are you willing to see how our attitudes separate us from one another? How our attitudes prevent the oneness, the unity that we all seek? It can be painful. Be brave. Fear not. Many negative attitudes are like overcoats that we take for granted. It becomes impossible to reach us. We can't pass through the narrow gate of the work because we're so fat with all these attitudes. Robert Schuller told this story one time. I heard this story he told. He was so dramatic. I'll try and tell the story like he told it. Because, you know, he was, This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I thought, wow, is that guy standing in front of a mirror and do that? I'm never going to have that kind of polish. I'm never going to cut the mustard. I'm never going to make it. I don't have time to stand in front of the mirror and do that. I stand in front of the mirror. All I see is me. I want to run away. Ah, screaming like my hair's on fire. Please make it go away. Somebody break the mirror. Cover all the mirrors in the house. You know. He told this story about this goose. These geese landed in the cornfield. The Canadian geese, they landed in this cornfield. and they, Oh, there was all this corn. They started to eat the corn. And they ate the corn, and they ate the corn, and they ate the corn. It started to get cold. Winter started coming. All the other geese said, okay, time to get out of here. We've got to head south. And this one goose, he just kept on eating. Yeah, but there's still so much more corn here. He stayed and ate the corn. All the other geese flew away, but he stayed and ate the corn. Oh, I'm not leaving. There's still so much corn here. I can make it in the winter with this. Then the snow came, and it got cold. And the goose said, oh, it's time to, to head south. Winter's here. And he tried, and he ran, and he flapped. But he was, and Robert Schuller said, too fat to fly. Thought, wow. Too fat to fly. 
The goose was too fat to fly. Made a big impression on me. Thank you, Robert Schuller. Thank you. Negative attitudes are like that. They make us too fat to fly. They make us so fat with all this acquired stuff, eating all this corn, gorging ourselves on all these negative attitudes because they're easy to come by, because they make us look good to all the people that we're being raised by and with, because we fit in, that we can't make it through the narrow gate. We're too fat to fly. We can't get off the ground. We can't get through the narrow space. We're like the rich man who becomes like a camel and he can't pass through the eye of a needle. All the same thing, too fat to fly, too many overcoats to get through the narrow gate. The camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. Oh, wow. Do you think any of these things have a similar meaning? Hmm, I wonder. Observe when you speak in a flat, dead voice. It's probably an attitude speaking through you. Observe when others speak in a flat, dead voice. Observe when others speak. You know, I noticed that nobody's yawning. Nobody seems to have any trouble staying awake. There's a reason for that. Because I'm not speaking from some attitude. I love being connected. When someone's connected, when they're there, you're there. When they're not, you're not. It's hard to be there with somebody who's not there. Observe when you speak in a flat, dead voice. It's probably an attitude speaking through you. Observe when others are speaking in a flat, dead voice. Observe yourself when you're listening to someone else. And if you find yourself yawning or being distracted, there's a very strong possibility that they're speaking from attitudes. So, there you have it. Have a good time. Practice what I preach. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com, to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.